and having something like compulsory education. You have to come to our schools, which only get our stamp of approval, and teach the things that we want to teach to young, vulnerable minds. No one else has the right to collect funds coercively for that or compel students to attend. You are listening to And If Love Remains, a unique show spotlighting people, ideas, science, culture, and art. Your host, Mike Lovett. Mike Lovett. Rachel, yes, you are listening to that great podcast in the sky and if love remains and I am its messenger. Welcome to the show, everybody. Welcome aboard. We shine the light of truth and all that good stuff that you've heard on every other show since, you know, today. But here we go. I am super excited to have on a returning guest, man. Keith Knight is the managing editor at the Libertarian Institute. He's the host of the Don't Tread on Anyone podcast and editor of the Voluntarist Handbook, a collection of essays, excerpts, and quotes, and the author of the book we're going to talk about today, Domestic Imperialism, Nine Reasons Why I Left Progressivism. Man, Keith, so happy. Most importantly, he's a friend of the show. Third time on. Brother, welcome. Mike, thank you so much for having me. And four out of four correct points on the bio. Congratulations. I, I just got to clip that. Just <laughs> so often I'm like, I wonder which one he's going to get wrong. Not because of you or anything, but I'm like, oh, oh you know, the books are kind of b- very specific names and, you know, it's not such a common title. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure, Mike. Hey, you're you're welcome. And I enjoyed reading your latest book, Domestic Imperialism, man. That was a great book and and really enjoyed it. And, and I want to get to it. First of all, man, let's just for a second. You've been like making the rounds. Things are happening. Talk to me a little bit about what's what's going on with you and the Libertarian Institute and, and things that are happening in your world, man. The main thing at the Libertarian Institute is the same thing that we've been going for for some time now, which is to create a free educational archive. So anyone interested in the concept of freedom can come to our website, go to our search engine, and type in anything, whether it's immigration, Israel, Winston Churchill, the First World War, and get a good idea of uh, what we advocate uh, or or our interpretation of what the uh, correct uh, freedom position is. But I've been working on this book now. I know it's very thin, but at the same time, I wanted something so short that would encourage progressives to read, and there's a free PDF at uh, libertarianinstitute.org. So, as always, you can uh, get the uh, material there. I, I You're just encouraging thinking, them to read, period? Is that the thing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I remember holding you know, a copy of Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, and I go, son of a gun, this tiny book had such a big influence. I gotta have... It can't be man economy and state size. My next one cannot be that big. Then I'm looking at Theodore Herzl's A Jewish State, and I go, I have to write something short and sweet. So this is my uh, attempt to give people the uh, ideas of freedom in a short and concise manner. No, it's wonderful. And it's really easy to read. I think your points are spot on. And I think you make some interesting points that I haven't heard in other places that that I kind of want to go over that I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about. 
I want to, first of all, because I mean, it's in your subtitle, Nine Reasons Why You Left Progressivism. Can you talk to me? Because your book is so, is so condensed that, that you don't get into kind of your biography. Um, it is more about the ideas, which is the most important thing. But but being a kind of like touchy-feely musician guy that I am, I am interested in 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 your story, your history. And and what does that mean that you were a progressive and, and why you left? Can you kind of walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, I originally aligned with uh, progressivism because I thought economically it would uh, be very beneficial to distribute things for free as opposed to making people bear a cost in order to access a product or service. And treating people equally was a better society overall because it gave people more dignity dignity, and you know, created more uh, goodwill among the population. Now, on the first count, as far as giving people things for free, the progressive immediately sees that giving the, you know, spending money on the military doesn't mean the military's free. You're allocating scarce dollars and material resources away from other things in the economy to the military. When they say defund the police, well, what's the problem with giving, you know, people a few million dollars? It's free because the government pays for it. Well, immediately they go, okay, well, it's not free. So the entire progressive narrative of education should be free, healthcare should be free, housing should be free. Well, we see that all of this is the equivalent of saying, you know, cell phones are free, you know, you have to pay for them. But once you pay for them, then they're free. For, for some way that they were able to get people to say, you know, it's free after they confiscate 30% of your income every year. <laughs> well, then everything's free. And then there's just no cost to anything. So first, there's no such thing as free. And then second, it drastically changes the amount of power certain groups within society have. So whether we give the Catholic Church a billion dollars or confiscate a billion dollars, that changes the amount of power that institution has. Or if we write Raytheon a blank check, that drastically changes the amount of power that right. they have in society. So it's not just that, oh, this costs money and I'm really cheap. It's if you don't like these organizations which advocate things such as locking down small businesses for an indefinite, uh, indefinite uh, period of time because of a virus and you just have to wait until it's completely safe in order to do anything. Well, if you don't like that organization, you should not have to bl blindly obey their edicts. So when it comes to the principle that progressives are constantly advocating, my body, my choice, all the libertarian does is actually take that and apply it in the economic sphere in advocating a decriminalization of economic activity between consenting adults. Yeah. And and when did that kind of, it is interesting because it, it, for me, I think there there's a there's a story there that's common to a lot of people that when they start to actually engage in and understand economics at a, at a more than, you know, freshman college level, it, te it tends to change their, their outlook on what progressivism, what statism, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't like a monopoly, man, then you are really going to hate the state. Right. And you make that point over and over in your book. So when did that kind of, that light come on for you and what were your main influences in, in making that happen? You know, it was so gradual. Uh, it would take me some time to think of who the exact main influences were. But on the second point as to, you know, I was a progressive because I believed in things like equality or egalitarianism. Oh, yes. It is amazing that you can get, advocate such a thing, yet also advocate the existence of a state, which is an explicit unegalitarian social structure, where even if you say, well, parties need to be equal. 
okay, well, there's no such thing as equal power and influence. That's a fool's errand. But as far as being legally equal, the state has a right to collect funds coercively. No other organization has the right to do that. That's a little unequal. They have the right to compel labor against your will in the form of military conscription, also known as the Selective Service Act. No other organization has the right to do that. That's very unequal. They have a monopoly on printing money with the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. That's very unequal. They can kill people after first declaring war on them with uh, more or less impunity. That's extremely unequal. And having something like compulsory education. You have to come to our schools, which only get our stamp of approval, and teach the things that we want to teach to young, vulnerable minds. No one else has the right to collect funds coercively for that or compel students to attend. So far from the state being the mechanism to achieve equality, it is the most unequal institution in society overall. So just being introduced to those ideas, I quickly said, uh, well... If I believe in any sort of, you know, however you define equality, obviously that can't count. Yeah. And and it's interesting that, that whenever we, whenever one starts to go back to first principles, when you start to say, okay, I need to use the non-aggression principle, you know, to its fullest, like, what does that actually mean? And how does that apply to everyday life? How do I apply the, the idea that, that I should allow somebody to say whatever they want to say? Or, or pretty much do whatever they want to do as long as they're not hurting me and my property. You know, when you start applying those things, like everything else falls away. And and for me, and I, I, I think you would agree with this, like the state becomes a facade. It becomes something that we have piled on top of to, to muddy the waters of what real natural property rights and what real natural rights are. And that's all the state does is just muddy those waters to give power to those to the elite of that are that have the ability to to obtain the the you know steer control of those powers as hans hoppe says the state is an expropriating property protector and not just a minimalist expropriator where it's like all right they take a microscopic amount but then there's all these benefits it's like they take huge amounts and spend on your behalf, making you liable for whatever they spend. I think last year it was $6.27 trillion they spent for our benefit. And still, I never get thanked for paying taxes by any politician or cop or soldiers. They're just so entitled to it at this point. So, yeah, uh, the idea oh, of an expropriating property protector is just ridiculous. I was reading in, in you know, in, in the Bible, I was reading the scripture about how a, a conquered people was forced to pay 20 percent, you know, to their masters. And that was seen as such a terrible thing. And I said, I think to myself, man, why are we not rising up? Because, man, 20 percent. Give me that all day long. <laughs> Well, we had a uh, great shift in opinion from a uh, probably the biggest progressive news site that's around the Young Turks. When Cenk Uger was on my channel, I interviewed him and I said, all right, so you concede that the U.S. is actively provoking a war with Russia and China over the Donbass region in Ukraine and over Taiwan. Knowing this, they're provoking a third world war. You still think people should be forced to chip in to this organization who's provoking a third world a uh, third world war. And he goes, yep, that's how democracy works. And then, you know, months go by. I know it had to have been nagging at him because the other day he goes, you know, if Biden still supports Netanyahu as they tell the Palestinians to go from the north to the south, and then they start bombing the south, pushing them into Egypt, well, that's ethnic cleansing. And I'm just going to stop paying taxes if they do that. <laughs> I go, oh my gosh, I jank. I don't even need credit. I don't need an email. I, just thank you. 
Oh, thank no, you for conceding. It's taking you. Awesome. I, I don't need the credit. Thank you. Well, I'm, that reminds me of this of the story not too long ago. I mean, this was. I don't know, six months ago, a year ago of the group of businessmen in San Francisco that realized that their city was going to crap that saw what everybody else saw that, that having, you know, homeless, you know, literally going to the bathroom in their streets and doing drugs and all kinds of stuff. They finally said, wait a sec, I'm paying all this money to the city and they're not cleaning this up. So we're just going to stop paying our taxes. And Except when Xi Jinping comes to town, then right. Gavin Newsom makes sure it's crystal Is that wild? clean. Hmm. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, it was uh, but very popular. He goes, well, when someone comes over to your house, when you have a guest, you clean up. And it was like, okay, so far from being, well, it's impossible. There's no way to clean up this city. The government only, you know, confiscates billions of dollars to the state every year. But cleaning is just impossible. Well, it actually was possible when well, and- uh, when Chairman Xi came in. And when you're and when you're not allowed to clean it up, like it's one thing, as you and I believe that if I own a piece of property and I want to clean it up, I'm I'm going to have an incentive to keep that property clean if I want people to come into my business. But if I'm not allowed to clean it up because some some police officer is going to come and stop me from cleaning it up because it's going to force somebody off of my property, then all of a sudden, okay, so now I'm paying somebody compulsory to clean something up and you're not going to do it unless it's it unless we clearly see the political motivations yeah and for people who are actually not familiar with this you have to search far and wide but it's usually local news stories who will report on something like this so i actually mentioned it in page on page 27 it's an article titled jay austin's beautiful illegal tiny house from reason magazine they usually do excellent work uh in here from august of 2014 Referring to tiny homes built in the area of Washington, D.C., where there's a significant homeless problem. I've been there. So here is what the free market attempt was to uh, resolve the homeless issue, saying, At a cost that ranges from $10,000 to $50,000, tiny homes like the Matchbox could help to ease the shortage of affordable housing in the capital city. Heating and cooling costs are negligible. Rainwater catchment systems help to make the home self-sustaining. They're an attractive option to the very sort of residents who the city attracts in abundance, single young professionals with a lot of stuff who aren't ready to take on a large mortgage. But tiny houses come with one enormous catch. They're illegal, in violation of several codes in Washington, D.C.'s zoning ordinance. Among the many requirements in the 34 chapters and 600 pages of code are mandates defining minimum lot sizes, room sizes, alleyway widths, and accessory dwelling units that prevent tiny houses from being anything more than a part-time residence. So, here we have the voluntary sector offering a low cost option, which progressives say cannot exist in the private sector. They're like, well, if something's privatized, then it's just going to be like a billion or like a trillion dollars. There's just no limit to what these people will charge. They don't consider the concept of competition and people being able to not buy the product if they don't like it. So they just assume if it's private, costs are going to be through the roof or prices rather. However, This is actually being done. And what was happened in this case, I also cite the case of Elvis Summers in Los Angeles. These are places with huge homeless populations. So all of our cities are uglier because of progressivism and this assumption that the state has the right to regulate consenting commercial interactions between adults. So uh, we'd have far fewer people being homeless. I also cite an example in Kansas City of people 
Dr. Rex Archer, who's the head of, you know, Kansas City Health Association, who ordered his employees to pour bleach on food that was given to the homeless by a group called Free Hot Soup. I, I think that they were called a uh, place in Kansas City. Uh, because they were doing so, they were giving people starving with no money food without a permit. So uh, because the state increasingly creates hurdles between producers and consumers, or people who have and people who don't have in the case of the homeless, uh, the more barriers there are, the fewer people on the other side of that equation who are going to be helped. They immediately see this in the case of voting restrictions. If you say, well, you have to pass five tests and you have to have a driver's license and you have to climb Mount Kilimanjaro three times barefoot in order to vote. They'd say, well, obviously that's going to hurt the most vulnerable people in society. But when there's thousands of regulatory pages that you have to comply with in order to start trading with other adult citizens in your own country, well, who do you think that hurts? You think Jeff Bezos is like losing sleep at night and calling Sam Walton, oh, how are we going to deal with these regulations? Of course, it hurts the most vulnerable people with the least amount of resources. So this is why progressivism, while it sells itself on vilifying the rich, it ends up hurting the poor. 100%. 100% and and those those unseen consequences you know as, as Bastier said we just they're they're clearly they're, they're only unseen because you are unwise and, un, and unwilling to read a book yeah you know i what, and in fact it's funny I, I i was you know harking back to you uh, in your last chapter there's a and i can't remember the gentleman you were interviewing but he but he just had such a great quote it, it, it was something to the effect of like yeah everybody everybody wants to stop your choice except for theirs you know oh who was that i want to say that was johan norberg this is a guy from sweden who wrote a, an excellent book titled progress 10 reasons to be optimistic about the future and what uh, what my question was was look there's tons of arguments about uh, free market shortcomings. You know, there's greed, there's nepotism, there's corruption. The problem is these are human problems that will always exist in any society. Bringing in a monopoly on violence, a state, doesn't stop these at all. In fact, it actually exacerbates them. So are there any criticisms that uniquely apply to the free market? And I asked this to like three or four professors at the end of the book, and he said, well, the his answer was essentially the paradox of choice, I think it's uh, generally referred to as, where if you have two options, you pick one, and that means you only left one thing on the table and you don't end up regretting it. You're pretty happy with your decision. But if you like try going to the Cheesecake Factory and finding the great thing to order, there's so much, no matter what you order, you're like, oh, I should have gotten something else because there's thousands of options that, that that you didn't get a chance. So so maybe he says an overwhelming amount of choice is very difficult for human beings to contemplate and deal with in the real world. Therefore, you know, a state, you know, limiting choices could help some people in the short run. So the immediate question is, well, which organization gets to regulate this? Surely, if Vladimir Putin started limiting Americans' choices, they wouldn't say, thank you so much for not getting me stuck in the paradox of choice, Vladimir. They'd say, they already you know, tried framing him for fake election interference in 2016 and in 2020. Imagine if he really started legislating against people's you know, freedoms uh, on their behalf, allegedly. Well, immediately they'd say, well, maybe the choice is bad for me, but who the hell are you to tell me this? So what people end up doing is using voluntary methods of regulation. This involves uh, places like Yelp 
Amazon reviews, Underwriters Laboratories will give their stamp of approval. Tech companies, if you go to Air- in Arizona at least, uh, you can call them up and say, no, what technology do you guys recommend that we use? What should we stay away from? And for a small fee, they will tell you, here are things that work really well and have very good reputations. So the idea that, well, we wouldn't have any standards and there'd be too much choice and everything, there's still ways to differentiate good and bad products and services and you know, people to associate with. So the reason that I put that at the end is because, you know, you can bash progressivism all day long, but if it's still the best alternative, well, then you're just criticizing the best thing that's around and saying, oh, there's a shortcoming. Well, there's always going to be shortcomings that people will frequently cite. Churchill allegedly said, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Okay, well, if there really is an alternative, then we should look at it. And sure enough, there are alternatives, even something like roads. In America, I want to say in 1795, the first road ever paved the Philadelphia Lancaster Turnpike was a private road. Organizations today like Vinci Concessions constantly make roads roads and railways. Yeah, well, even railways were uh, privatized with people like Vanderbilt and Rockefeller at the beginning. So it turns out uh, everything can be privatized. There is an actual alternative. That's why I made it the last chapter of the first section of the book. And you make make such a great point about... I don't remember the cathedral, but there's the cathedral, I think in England and then the, and then the Statue of Liberty that were all funded, you know, by private donations. They're funded by, you know, ways, ways other than government funding, other than coercion that allowed beautiful, wonderful, glorious monuments to be built, you know, without, and, and, and here's the other thing, everything, and you said it earlier, everything that the state does is ugly, period. Everything the state does is ugly. And, and we see that over and over from architecture to art, everything, they, they, everything it does is ugly. But when, when people come together as a community, as in a charitable contribution or in a religious outlook, or even just a, a trying to build a statue of, as a symbol to freedom, beauty happens. Yeah, so the examples I use are the Statue of Liberty in New York City. You can actually visit there. There's a trip that, uh, it's a two-for-one. You get to go to the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island. Tons of very interesting materials to read. Uh, I actually did this last year with with my aunt. And you can find out how the Statue of Liberty was built in France by a bunch of voluntarily funded donations. And it is interesting to see how they still made money by you know getting people to donate funds voluntarily and to take people on tours as they were building it, they would charge people. So it's not like someone's gonna gain, but someone has to lose in this scenario. It's like, no, uh, the second you say, here's your constraint, do anything you want that is within the realm of voluntarism, then people get so creative in what they can come up with. So the Statue of Liberty is the first one. And then the Salisbury Cathedral in England is just this beautiful cathedral. And so often people like uh, Tucker Carlson will say, well, all the Walmarts of the world are making it so ugly. Walmart is related to business. Business is related to capitalism. Therefore, capitalism yields ugly things. And that could be true, but all you have to do is say, well, if people really want beautiful things, what sort of system would we rather have? One where they can voluntarily donate to them or one in which the state more or less has a monopoly on what can and can't get built 
under the guise of helping, you know, the collective well, and, or whatever. And, this, and and the answer is very clear. You want a free market system. Absolutely. And, and talking about those Walmarts, you know, how many Walmarts would look so much better if they didn't have so much regulation and so much red tape? They have to have a have a cookie cutter box so that everyone's the same and it's going to fit no matter wherever you put one in Los Angeles or if you put one in Phoenix, Arizona or in Houston, Texas, it all has to be the same because the organization's so big and you have to comply with so many rules and so many laws. You're, it's bound to be ugly and and lame. You know, if 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 an individual business could could create, you know, wanted to create a landmark to bring customers in and and to, you know, make something beautiful that kind of works with the environment that they live in. Man, I think I think Walmart would do that if they could. Oh yeah. Well I worked at a Walmart for some time when I was much younger and you should see the difficulty. All we wanted to do was, believe it or not, reconstruct the road that was a public road. Because, n- not because the CEO of Walmart was so kind, I th- Doug McMullen, I don't know if he's uh, still the CEO, I thought he was actually kind of a jerk, took every opportunity to promote social justice causes, right. took every opportunity to uh, advocate increasing the minimum wage, wonder why Walmart would be doing that, but because a better road would attract more customers to our area, and they straight up treat you like a criminal if you want to make your society look better than it it, it currently does. Adam Carolla famously said this. He goes, all you uh, pro-government people, do me a favor, move to L.A. and just build something on property you already own. Right. Just build a shed. Just extend your garage <laughs> and you will hate him. He goes on this long rant and he has a great interview with Gavin Newsom on, or I think Gavin Newsom was the mayor at the time when oh. uh, Carolla had him on. But yeah, that that was uh, Carolla's it's, point that, no, you know, once you see how difficult they actually are, it's not like just this theory. The, we're called the people who just live in theory world when they're like, oh, no, government's here to keep you safe. It's like, OK, try actually building something when, you know, of course, it's a bunch of rioters who are always telling you that more things need to be built and there needs to be more opportunities and they never offer you opportunities. It's just the opposite of the way things should be no, and it can is the- be. It is the opposite. And, and, you know, it is hilarious that, that people who believe like us are, are accused of, you know, living in fantasy land because the truth is, the truth is this, the idea of zoning laws, the idea of city planners is such a brand new phenomena. It used to be that a village would create, would, would, you know, organically grow and families would commune with each other and you would have, why would you need a police department when the mom down the street was saying, Hey, why are you still outside? It's after, you know, like, why would you need a, why, why would you need a Walmart if you could go to the farmer down the street? Like, in other words, there was a system and it worked beautifully and it happened organically and it happened like that. But, but when, People came in and wanted to control and, and frankly, gentrify communities, blow up communities, split communities, do all the things that government does to destroy families and to destroy communities. Now we're in a situation of like, now we have to rebuild what was already built before. And yet we have all these constraints to do it. Exactly. Uh, they see it crystal clear in the healthcare sector. They go, well, if you raise the cost of healthcare, poor people, uh, it'll be harder. The higher the price, the harder it is for poor people to access healthcare. But when you say you have to drastically increase the cost of building things, well, fewer things are going to get built. And the current builders have less competition, so they're not going to be saying, well, we really got to make an attractive structure here in order to get people. So 
by uh, by any metric you use, just morally, economically, these regulations should not be on the books. Yeah, one of the one of the chapters you put in, I, and I really I appreciate it very much because it is a a fallacy that you hear is that, and I love your title that government provided doesn't mean universal. Something to that oh. effect, I think. Government yes. provided, yeah, I was right. Woo, <laughs> government provided does not mean universal. I, and I love that concept because it, it, you know, the the government provided schools, government provided healthcare, anything that's government provided is going to create scarcity by definition. It happens every time, and you can see every bubble that was created was created because of a government program that was, you know, on the surface was trying to do good. The truth was trying to enrich others, but. But I love what you what you're talking about there in that chapter. Can you can you talk about where you came up with that and and why that's an important aspect to your growth in in this book? Of course, yeah. A lot of uh, programs are sold by progressives as saying this should be something universal, whether it's healthcare, housing, food, shelter, schooling. What uh, they are conflating is a goal versus a process. So if you want everyone to have something, that doesn't tell you what process you should use in order to achieve universal access. Thankfully, we the, the government originally had uh, the Langley Project, which was competing with the Wright brothers for who could build the airplane. And fortunately, people today have universal, have much more access than they otherwise would as a result of the Wright brothers w- winning that fight against the, uh, the, the Langley project. Oh, I, or, positive. and frankly, the, the, the government deregulating the airlines in the seventies, allowing, you know, for cheaper airlines. I mean, gave a whole bunch more people access to that kind of travel. Exactly. I want to say it was the airline deregulation act of 1978, which I also mentioned in the book. So the, all we have to do before saying, well, healthcare should be universal is look at what the state already provides in terms of, say, schooling. Just because the state provides it doesn't mean we have a universally educated population, to the contrary. Just because the state does that basically already attempts to provide universal health care with something like Medicaid. The whole thing was Medicare is for people who can't work and Medicaid is for people who can't afford health insurance or health care, rather, and uh, everyone else can either buy it. So that takes care of everyone, the elderly who aren't working and producing, the poor, and then people who can already afford it. Well, th- all this has done is drastically increase the amount of uh, health care costs in society since the implementation of, you know, FDA expansion, Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, Medicare Part D under George Bush Jr. So giving the state, you know, a monopoly on something, does not render it in a state of universality. The progressive sees this immediately with the police if you say, well, you don't have to worry about injustice because we already have universal guaranteed justice between the police and the court system. Right? And it's free. It's we have free. free guaranteed universal justice. They go, oh, well, no, that's a terrible product. That costs way too much. <laughs> so, of course, uh, th- they think like j- just changing the-, the words you use to describe the same thing is going to yield a different outcome. Th- it's just a uh, total fallacy to say that. I want everyone to have something, therefore, it should be provided by a coercively funded monopoly. Right, right. And I think your healthcare example is so is, is spot on because the other thing that it does is it it creates classes of people where the middle class has to, you know, even subconsciously make a decision, you know, am I going to 
you know, am I going to find a way to fit in that Medicaid box, which seems to expand more and more? And so you're losing this productive class, you know, that we have of people that are producing and, and that are, that are making things because of something as, as simple as healthcare. And the only reason why prices are going up so incredibly high is because so much of it is regulated and so much of it is, well, I think regulation, you know, kind of covers it, subsidized also. And and who's subsidizing it? It is the productive class as subsidizing. And the productive class, by the way, I don't mean the billionaires and the millionaire. And the, I'm talking about the people that actually pay the taxes to the elite class. Because we, we have this, like, idea that capitalism, you know, and, and, and the free market helps the helps the wealthy. It really doesn't. It helps the poor become more wealthy, and what the wealthy want is more status and more power, and so they and more coercion, so that they have less competition. And I just said about fourteen things, and so I I'll let you go. <laughs> so uh, the first half of the book is a basically extension of a uh, version of a speech I gave at the university club in Arizona, and then the second portion is a collection of quotes from my favorite books that I've read over the years. And the first one actually isn't even from a book. It's just a tweet from Michael Malice. And he goes, if the government didn't have a monopoly on security, only rich people would have security. Just like when the government got out of other businesses, the only cars produced were limousines. The only clothes produced were tuxedos and the only food produced was foie gras. So immediately you see, look, even if you know, you're saying, well, I care about the poor. That doesn't automatically mean the state should have any role in what's being provided because there's a built in incentive for producers to market their products and services to the masses at large. I just hit the microphone. Sorry. When you take the case of Henry Ford, he very well could have uh, just made, you know, a few cars for the elites, but not because he was such a kind, virtuous person. Because it was in his self-interest to have as many customers as possible. So he drastically lowered the cost of the Model T. Right. Just like Vanderbilt drastically decreased the cost of accessing steamship travel. This is something huge. Carnegie didn't you know, quadruple the price of steel, which you know affects the price of everything else that's made in society. He drastically decreased the price of steel with his production process because of competition, because of his ability to innovate and trade with people voluntarily. So if you care about the poor, abandon progressivism you, and embrace libertarianism. I, did, I don't remember reading this in your book. Do you know? The, do you remember the story of, of Dole Chemical um, mm. and Borean, I think it is. You know what? I know I had to. I think I think it's a Tom Woods speech. I think it's a Tom Woods speech where he talks about Dole going and getting, uh, you know, buying Borean from the Germans at like, you know, eight cents or whatever, and then selling it back to him at 13 because of the regulations that they had put in place. It's a a great story because, you know, there's there. And this is the other thing. Is that there? There's always going to be, you know. I always say that the only true market is the black market. There's always going to be a market for for goods and services and the things that people want and desire. And the more free and open we can be, and which which also means a free and free and open currency or, or money supply, fair at least, then it allows people to provide those services at less and less cost and what does that cost mean how many like i think of things in terms of how many piano lessons is this going to cost me you know yeah. and, and and so what does that mean that means that when prices go up that means i have to charge my students more money and 
man, that's a burden on everybody. And, and people go, well, well, that's just how it is, but it's not how it is. If we're becoming more economic, think prices should be going down. And, it, and man, it, it ticks me off that people don't understand that simple idea. It's just so frustrating. More regulations lead to more costs, higher yeah. costs to produce mean higher costs for consumers, which leads to fewer options for consumers. And it creates the very oligopolies and monopolies that the progressive claims to be against. For sure. Where, before we move on, I, I neglected to, to make sure that we get this in. Where can people buy your book and read it? Check out libertarianinstitute.org in the book section. You can find domestic imperialism. You can also find it on Barnes & Noble as well as Amazon. But uh, if you go to the Libertarian Institute, you can find uh, the main links there. Perfect, perfect. And the Libertarian Institute is one of my very favorite organizations. You know, they're they're a organization that that I contribute to. I think it's a it's a very important organization. And the, the writers, including yourself and, and Scott, Lori, I've had her on. Um, you, you guys do such great work because you're, you're telling the truth, man. You're telling the truth. And, and it's, it's, I, I just hope to see your, your organization grow and gain more influence every day. Thanks so much. LibertarianInstitute.org. People can check it out. Absolutely. You have a chapter in your book, which I, I thought is very interesting, called Voter suppression versus economic suppression, and talk about that a little bit. And 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 I think it's we've talked around that a little bit, but but specifically, what do you mean by voter suppression versus economic suppression? So this is the very idea that uh, if you increase the cost of voting with regulations, you end up hurting the most vulnerable people in society. It makes it harder for them to vote. All I do is take the case of well, if voting is about, you know, making sure people's, you know, desires are reflected in the society at large. The reality is, is that if you're one vote, whether it goes in the voting box or in the shredder is not going to change the outcome. But something that actually does change the outcome in your life is the amount of economic opportunities you have with what you can buy in opposition to, you know, regulations, tariffs, and embargoes. So that restricts how your life could actually be better restricting who your employer can be, restricting where you can build, that is the actual suppression which negatively affects every person every single day. Whereas voter suppression, look, if some someone was suppressing someone else's vote, I'd think that psychologically that could do a lot of damage as far as increasing feelings of insecurity, but it's not going to change the outcome. Any economic suppression, which the progressive actually advocates, that drastically affects everyone almost negatively. So the example I use is, okay, if you're against voter suppression, if tomorrow we said, look, blacks j just can't vote in America anymore, people would rightfully be outraged because of the blatant double standard. But go to, I went to a bunch of these uh, school choice meetings in Arizona when Doug Ducey was governor and it was the this huge thing. Right. I would ask a lot of people there, I'd say, would you give up your vote if it meant you could actually choose where your dollars went to to which school you could send your kids to? And they said, oh, obviously, absolutely. Look, it's nothing that I'd brag about or do happily. And it could lead to other bad things. And, you know, th that would be difficult. But as far as what has a bigger effect on your life, right? voting once every four years for two politicians who are total liars and God knows if the votes are even counted, or products and services that you actually consume, where you go to work. So I asked people to imagine two criminals, a voter suppressor and an economic suppressor. The 
voter suppressor sneaks into your house, steals your ballot, and, uh, you know, just puts it in the trash and you don't get to vote. Versus the guy who violently stops you by threatening you from getting a job as a hairdresser or a massage therapist or getting on-the-job experience at a hospital or uh, stops you from working at a, a supermarket. Which of these two criminals, both of them, let's say, did something wrong, which one would you give a larger sentence to? Which one is a really a bigger threat to society? Someone who stops voters or someone who actually stops you from accessing products and services which make your life better? And immediately you say, okay, if I am against voter suppression at all, every reason I'm against voter suppression, I should be against economic suppression, right. which is the state coercively intervening in voluntary interactions. So that is the premise of that chapter. It's 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 well well written, and the point is is absolutely clear. I, I think because uh, frankly, voter suppression is happening even if the votes are counted all the way, even if you you do go in and vote. Because the the bottom line is is who I vote for is not the person that I, that I may represent. In other words, like. If my neighbor votes more than I do, like how am I represented by that representative? <laughs> I'm not because I didn't vote for him. And so it's already suppressed. Whereas in an economic trans transaction, you know, I love the Milton Freeman. If I like if I if I want to buy your tie, there's a price for your tie at, at a Walmart. And if I want a blue one, I can have a blue one. If I want a green one, if I want a Mises tie, I can go to the you know Mises Institute and buy a Mises tie. You know, in, in other words, I have unlimited choices. Where in the political field, we are suppressed to two choices within a window of about that much. <laughs> yeah, really. And they're always telling us that uh, the free market leads to oligopolies. Okay, well, the political process has Democrats and Republicans. If that's not an oligopoly, I don't know what it is. Look at how hard do those politicians work to make sure the Green Party, the People's Party, the Libertarian Party yep. get on stage. Certainly, if they are the solution to oligopolies, they should be the least oligopic institution in society, at least. Uh, and they, of course, never do that. Right. So you always have people who want more power in any society. The question is which sort of set of rules or processes should be embraced to decrease the amount of oligopolies that would exist. And obviously, the answer is a free market where there's fewer barriers to entry, more competition, and more freedom to uh, trade with others. Absolutely. Hey, Keith, I want to I want to finish with this one. First of all, I really encourage people to go purchase your book. It is a great read. It's a short read and you'll get it, it's I mean, for bang for the, you know, buck as far as time it takes to, to read it and the amount of information you get. It's top notch. Absolutely wonderful. You are well read. You're one of you. I, I, I can't think of anybody that ha that can spout out libertarian philosophy and quotes quite as well as you, frankly. It's it's wonderful that when I see you on I appreciate your time with me. What books other than yours would you recommend for people to read? If people say, hey man, I really want to get into this, what what are maybe a, a short library of books that that you would recommend people to to pick up? Hans Hoppe's book, A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism, that is for uh, someone generally interested in uh, getting a little further in the ideas. What he essentially does is gets to the root differences between 
communism, the abolition of private property, socialism, the institutionalized aggression against private property, and capitalism, a social system based on the explicit recognition of non-aggressive contractual exchanges between private property owners. He really lays that out. That would be a great economics textbook. Second, maybe Milton Friedman's Free to Choose. That is a great empirical analysis of the free market, whereas Hans Hoppe is a little more theory-oriented, but still gets into empirical examples. And as far as the morality, I would say Murray Rothbard's book published in 1974 titled 4A New Liberty. Those would be the books that I would check out. And then uh, historically, One book is titled Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism by Scott Horton, where he goes through each aspect of the war on terror, has a chapter on Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, and Syria. Very uh, informative. And this is just vitally important because so much of uh, the state gaining its legitimacy doesn't come from people engaged in philosophical discussions, but they're like, look, the reality is we got a bunch of terrorists who want to blow our heads off because we are free. Well, Scott Horton just takes a hammer to uh, each one of those cases individually, even with the main case of Afghanistan, the most popular of those wars. He makes it clear that in October of 2001, the Taliban was willing to hand bin Laden over to any third country who would take them and the entire war could have been avoided along with the humiliating withdrawal, which was probably still necessary. Other uh, historical book would be Churchill, Hitler and the Unnecessary War by Richard Nixon's speechwriter, Patrick J. Buchanan, where he makes the case that not only was the First World War unjustified and led to millions of deaths and terrible outcomes, including Hitler, Mussolini, and the Bolshevik regime in Russia, but even the Second World War, which has a lot of support even today, led to tens of millions of deaths and the Bolshevik regime getting half of Europe and led to proxy wars in Korea, Vietnam, fighting in Angola, as well as Afghanistan. So yeah, those are uh, the books I'd recommend on history, economics, and morality. Fantastic. Fantastic. I do, in fact, I just got where, where is my copy. I'll is. trust that you have it. There it is. Coming to Palestine. Just pick oh, that one yes. up, man. I'm looking forward to digging into this. That, I think that's an important one for what's going on, too, in that area of the world. Man, Keith, I really appreciate your time. This is this is wonderful. Check him out at the Don't Tread on Anyone podcast, Libertarian Institute. And then, of course, pick up his book, Domestic Imperialism, Nine hey, Reasons. Yeah, yeah. B- before I go, were you able to tell who all of these five people are on the cover? Oh, you know what? Because I looked at it, I looked at the, I got a PDF of it. I didn't see okay. the cover. So let me, let me look at your cover. Let me look at your cover. Let me see if you I You know can. what? That, this is the uh, print version. So the, the first run. So it actually has this. Uh, Wait, not is that AOC on the right? Center. Yeah. I was uh, just curious. I got a uh, great artist to do this. It's Mises Pieces on Twitter. You can find his work, Andrew. He does uh, t- terrific work. Uh, I, I just uh, like asking interviewers, I go, to me, it looks so clear. But then again, I chose every one of the faces. So, of course, I know who they are. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I thought uh, this was uh, well, just, I, just great. I did see a cover of the book. And I do. It is. A, and obviously, I can see it now. It is a great cover. I love like the stark, like bold colors and the and the, the font is fantastic. So 
So yeah, the the goal was to show that when I'm criticizing progressivism, it's not just the SJWs of today. This is actually an ideology that goes back to you know Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, Lyndon Johnson, Bernie Sanders, and today AOC. So it is something that's embraced by and because corporate marketing campaigns, you know, Hollywood, human resource institutions, and even the Republican Party to a very large extent. Absolutely. That's what I was going to say, because those are the waters that we swim in. I mean, you can make a case that Reagan, you know, for the hero of the right was a big progressive in a lot of areas. You can make a case for definitely for George W. Bush. And as you talked about, you know, Scott Horn's book, you know, it is an absolute fact when one realizes that war is the health of the state, man, that changes your perspective on everything because you realize that that everything that we do is focused on creating, maintaining, and extending war. Exactly. Yeah. Check uh, ch- check his book out. It's titled Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. All right. Well, domestic imperialism, Keith Knight, brother, I really appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much. Anytime, Mike. Mike is gone. You are listening to End of Love Remains. Gone but not forgotten. First of 23 installments requested by Dr. Levitt. Trying to be in compliance here because we're taking him and that whole organization.